Hi, I'm Ben. Hi, I'm Rob. We've been mates since we met at drama school in 2004. We're both actors, and for the last 10 years we've been working in all sorts of productions, from small fringe shows to big arena tours. We love the theatre, so we thought we would make a podcast to bring you a series of inspiring conversations with interesting people from the world of theatre. So this is our podcast. Welcome to Inside the West End. Inside the West End with Ben Morris and Rob Copeland. Thank you for downloading episode 9 of Inside the West End. Follow us on Twitter at Inside West End, or if you want to contact us, then email InsideTheWestEnd at gmail.com. Coming up in this episode, we speak to Eddie Elliott. Eddie is currently in the cast of Motown in the West End, and he's been a, a great old friend of ours for more than 10 years now. In that time, he's had a successful and very diverse career. When we started making this podcast, one of the things that we were very keen on was making it as varied as possible and using this as a way to shine a light on all sorts of different issues that affect people in our industry, one of which was mental health. Over the time that Ben and I have known Eddie, he's been very honest with both of us about his own experiences coping with mental health issues as a performer. We thought this would be a great opportunity to hear from someone in this position. We should point out that there are some very upsetting moments in this episode, but Eddie has shared these moments in the hope that it may help other people. So with that in mind, this is our chat with our very good friend, Mr. Eddie Elliott. This is Eddie Elliott, and you're listening to Inside the West End. Eddie Elliott, welcome to Inside the West End. Thank you. This is very um, exciting, actually. <laughs> that was, exciting. That was a, a strategically dramatic pause. No, it wasn't strategic. I was thinking, <laughs> what's the right word to use? I'm very excited about this whole thing. So uh, we're recording this podcast in uh, my flat. Which is also your flat, because we are flatmates. We are. And uh, we've known each other a very, very long time. Yes. And lived together for six months. Yes, six you, months, yeah. You enjoying it? I'm loving it. <laughs> What's Ben's worst habit? I don't think he's got too many, I can't think of anything that's really... Good, we'll leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> Eddie, no. you're currently in Motown. Yes, I am. Motown. Uh, how's it going? going? It is phenomenal. What do you do in Motown? I'm in the ensemble, so I am I am the base of the show. I'm being hired specifically for having this bass voice, which is something that doesn't happen very often. They're getting me to sing lower than I've ever sung in my life. Before we continue talking about your current job, let's hear how you got there. So let's hear a bit about the young Eddie Elliott growing up. I grew up in London, south southwest London, and always knew that I was pretty good at being a bit funny and loud and outspoken and singing, and acting, and I like doing all of it. However, I went to a private school where the uh, objective was for me to become some kind of doctor or lawyer. And academically, I was really, really good, you know. Did you fit in with your peers? I did and I didn't. I was the only openly gay, gay uh, teenager in a school of 850 boys. So I came out when I was 13. And actually, everyone, most people, for the most part, were great. But on the flip side of that, there were people who were, who were horrible, who were nasty. So I always did feel this overwhelming sense of being different. Do you feel same at home? With family life? Home, I found Eddie, Edwards and Eddie are two different people. I, I got to 13 and came up with this, with this, I guess, alter ego, who I am now, Eddie. And at home, Edward is a very different character, very obedient. I was the first child. My parents are really strict uh, Nigerians. 
uh, really religious, really, and really, you know, driven by academic success. And I just, I was a high achiever and I followed all the rules. I was quite a different person. School and the outside world was where I was developing my sense of self. I couldn't talk to my, my mum about what was going on um, in terms of my sexuality and the troubles I was having, you know, bullying, the fears I had about, you know, growing up as a Christian and gay and thinking what, 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 what that would mean. My dad and I didn't have much of a relationship at all, really. I mean, he was there as a presence in my, in my home growing up, but he definitely certainly wouldn't, as far as I was aware, tolerate me being too much, whether that means, I don't know, uh, too gay, too loud, too, too extreme, too... When did you tell your parents that you were gay? Officially, I came out to my, my mother. My dad was away in Nigeria. So the first time, the, my first term at university is when there's massive change. While I was there, I, did, I you know, was openly gay, was doing law thing and thought, right, now that I'm no longer living under my parents' roof, I can, t- I can tell them who I am. I wrote my mum a letter. And did you post it in the post box? Post it in the post box. However, a few days went by, or the next day, I panicked and got my sister, who was still living at my parents' house, to intercept the letter. <laughs> which she did. At this point, my dad was in Nigeria um, on holidays or visiting family. And I'd gone home from the, for the weekend to do my washing, get my laundries out of my mum's house. And she dropped me off at Waterloo Station. And I had this letter in my pocket. And somehow I plucked up the courage and said, Mum, this is something I need you to read. But I'm going to go now and left the letter with her. And yeah, I don't, I don't remember what happened after that. It was difficult. My mum coming to terms with me being gay has been, uh, you know... A really long process of years, not just... Did you did you long for their acceptance? Did you rebel against that? It was a time of turmoil anyway for me, because at the same time, my dad was still in Nigeria, and I said to him, I'm not doing a law degree. called him up and said, I'm not doing a law degree, I hate it. He was like, you have to finish it, you're going to finish it. Like, telling me I was going to do this. And I, was, and I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not. And I can make decisions for myself. And this was the first sense of ever rebelling and saying, saying to my dad, actually... It's, it's my life now. I'm going to do what I want. So I started, as I said, developing a sense of self and making decisions about the life that I wanted. Um, it was in music and drama society and they were doing a production of Fame. Auditioned for this thing and got awarded the part of... Um, awarded, that's a really ridiculous word to say. <laughs> got given the part of Tyrone. Hey ho. And here's the first of many black roles that Eddie Elliott will play. Um, it was great. It was an amazing experience to be with lots of people my age who were just talented. It, it, it was incredible. And slowly but surely, some of the girls who were dancing said, you should audition to go to dance school. I didn't know anything about it. And I remember Googling like drama slash dance school degree courses, because I still had them back in my mind. My parents would only accept me doing a change of course if it was a degree. So I, I found a few places with the help of some of the girls and then went to the first audition. <laughs> so I got there and it, literally this is the first time I'd ever seen a ballet bar. This is the first time I'd seen a mirrored, mirrored studio and all the people in leotards, people doing splits <laughs> and me couldn't touch my toes. I could barely touch my knees at the time. The only thing that I stood out, me versus all the other guys, was that I could sing. I could sing really, really well actually compared to the majority of people. And we did a drama workshop with all the um, auditionees that day and I just knew that I was really strong. But it was ballet class. It was a ballet jazz or thing. There was a contemporary. Then it was a tap thing, like, constantly. And each time, I knew nothing about what was going on. Like, I didn't know what I was doing. I, by the end of the day, I tore my hamstring. And I'd given up. I thought, I can't do this. This isn't for me. This is way out of my league. This was around January, February of this year. It came March. And the day before my Mount audition, my best friend at university, she was like, you've got to go. 
I'm not going, I said, I'm not going, I'm not ready, I can't do it, they're not going to take me, I'm not good enough, I can't, she said, you've got to go, I'm going to take the day off lectures, I'm going to take, go to London with you, we're going to go and do this Mount View audition. And we got on the train the next day with Lizzie and did, did this day of auditions and I knew there and then I had to go to Mount View. A few days later, got the acceptance letter without a dada. So without any money to pay, pay for my training, which at the time was like 30 grand for the three years. And I remember being called by the bursar saying, there's one place left at the school for this year. You're the last person to, you haven't replied. We need to know by the end of this week from you. Long story short, Christopher and a friend of his, um, Jeremy, they paid for my first year. And I went, I went to Mount View, amazingly. Um, I think at this point we need to... Christopher, your surrogate dad, who is he? So I have two gay dads who aren't my biological, biological fathers. Chris Chris was the the vicar at the church down the high street. Um, because their names are Chris and, and Christopher. Christopher. <laughs> so Chris was the vicar at the church where my parents got married. So he was our family church vicar. And Christopher was his partner. And he was responsible for doing all the music at the church. He was became a bit of a mentor. And I started singing at his... Um, concerts that he did once a month and he was the first adult I ever came out to as a 15 16 year old and Christopher basically let me know that it was all right to be homosexual and that was it like he was he suddenly became my rock my anchor and they and they have been ever since basically you know so tell us about your first year at Manfew within a few weeks I found myself living the life that I thought I'd always wanted I met my first ever boyfriend I was singing dancing. It was everything I wanted it to be. It was hard work, but it was amazing. After the initial fun died down, I started to realise things weren't quite, quite right with me. Um, I started struggling emotionally, uh, mentally. Uh, I was aware that everyone, to my mind, was better than me. The reality is, they probably weren't. My self-esteem plummeted. Yes, remember again that I came from a real academic background, and after my first term, I think I got like fifty-seven percent. And the reason I remember that is because numbers were always really important to me. And here I was with fifty-seven percent, thinking this confirmed the fact that I was shit. I started having panic attacks at home with my, you know, behind closed doors with my partner late at night. By the second term, I was having a lot of panic attacks, uh, which led to self-harming. I don't know why. No, I do know why. It was, it was a form of punishment, self-punishment and going, this is what you get, this is what you get for not being good enough. You need to step up your game. Um, but also it was, a, it was a physical outlet. It was a way of, there was so much um, bubbling up inside of me, uh, pressure was building up from the inside that in some ways cutting yourself was a way of releasing that inside feeling on the outside. But at college, I was fine. At college, I was... Professional, I was fun, I was, you know, everything was fine. No one would ever know anything. I was determined that no one would see my weakness. Second term, we had to do a modern play which required me to do a northern accent. Anyone who knows me now knows that I still cannot do accents. Don't bother. I won't even turn up to the audition. <laughs> um, and this became the really exposing thing for me. End of the term, we did... We did the performance that we were going to be marked on. And I remember going to the boys' toilets and just hacking into my arm um, because I was convinced I'd done so badly in this performance and I exposed myself so awfully that everyone knew how awful I was. Um, 
my costume at the time was a white shirt, a white like shirt you'd wear for to work to the office or uniform, and the blood was seeping through the shirt. And I didn't realise this was happening. Someone noticed it first, and then people, more people started noticing. I remember one of my housemates saying to my partner, "He's not well, is he? He's, he's, he's not well. Eddie's not well." And this is the first time that I'd even thought of it being an illness or a condition. I just thought this was just me. We had an on-site counsellor, and I was booked in to see her, and it was awful. So I didn't go to see her again, and I told told my partner at the time, and you know, we carried on. Uh, third term was song and dance term. We had another big. Um, performance to do. The day of the performance, we were going through um, a Mamma Mia routine and the head of the course made six or seven of us do it again. And I sulked. I really sulked. You know, I'm not very good at hiding how I feel. I made it very clear that I, I thought this was ridiculous that I was being asked to perform this again, being exposed. But ultimately, it's like being exposed for being the fraud that I was. They could see, that now everyone was going to see that Eddie didn't quite have it together. And I do remember, I remember kind of walking away and sitting downstairs in the, in, in, the, in the car park thinking, this is absolutely awful. And the head of our course came downstairs and said, Eddie, you know I need to have a chat, don't we? And I was like, no, we don't. And I just walked away. I, I walked away there and then and walked around knowing that this performance was due to happen. Eventually I went back just before, and I went back and I heard someone else was being taught my solo. Uh, and eventually one of the teachers said, look, it would be a massive favour if you, if you just do this performance, get through this performance so we don't have to change it so much. On the condition that I was leaving, I told them that I was leaving college. I'd do this performance for them and then I'd leave. I got home that night and, and, and I panicked. I, I can't leave, I can't leave. I, don't, I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave. I called head of course and said, no, I, I made a mistake, I don't want to leave. And he said, it's not as simple as that. Okay, fine. I went back to college the next day. Ultimately, I was called into the office of the head of the whole school, the principal of the whole school and the head of our course, and was told that I would have to leave at least for a year to get better because I was struggling, visibly struggling. I heard that as your life is over. Remember, I'd gone at the beginning of the year, I'd said, this is my life I've always wanted to live, to this is a fucking nightmare. Every day's really difficult. I'm struggling. I'm having, I'm self-harming. I'm having uh, nervous breakdowns all the time panic attacks all the time. Um, and now they're telling me, you've messed it up for good. We're kicking you out, basically. And I was in floods of tears. They assured me that, no, it's fine. We'll, you know, we'll help you defer a year, basically. You'll join your second year, um, but your current year will be the year above you. I thought, okay, fine. And then I went into a really... I went into a really calm state after all this crying. I went, to, I went, went through the common room, said goodbye to people, but literally just sobbing, sobbing. I thought my life was over and that I had fucked up so badly this time. Not only had I gone wrong, disappointed my parents with not finishing my law degree. This is what I'd chosen to do. This is what I fought my parents to do. And it was going horribly wrong. It had gone horribly wrong. I messed up this one of the, um, I kind of like trashed one of the, rehearsal studios and smashed up the watch that my best friend Lizzie the girl who had taken me to Mountview to audition with to, to encourage me to audition I smashed up this watch because I wanted to destroy everything that was good and then this calm fell over me and I went into this really weird trance-like state I could hear people talking around me and I resolved at that moment to kill myself 
I thought that night when I get home, I'm going to end my life. Um, I don't think I knew how I was going to do it. I don't know. But in that moment, I felt so peaceful because I knew that my suffering, my struggle was going to end. So for me, it felt like the most logical thing to do. And I felt such calm and it felt really, really good. And then I thought, well, why am I putting it off? If I'm going to feel that good in a few hours' time, I should do it now. I can do it now. Um, so I went into um, <clears throat> I went to the boys' cubicle, boys' toilet, um, and locked locked the main door to the to the toilets, and um, basically hung myself. Basically hung myself um, using my belt, stepping on the toilet, and then falling, stepping off the edge of the toilet, and. And it's very vivid for me. In the interim, I guess, my partner had discovered that I was missing and happened to come into the toilet and realise that the main door was locked. Now, the main door's never locked. I could hear him. And luckily, luckily he broke down. He managed to break the lock and grab my legs. Grab my legs. Um, and I mean, I don't think I've ever heard anyone scream so loud in my life to this day and just screaming, help, help, help. It, it, so loud in my head. But obviously he was holding my legs to stop the pressure, but at the same time he couldn't undo the, uh, the knot himself. So I was still choking. Our head, of course, eventually must have heard. And this, <laughs> I struggled with this guy, the, the, the head of our course. I remember digging my nails into his hand to stop him from undoing this noose. But eventually they, um, they got me down. I was fine. Well, I, was, I was fine. I mean, I was alive. But... In that moment, I hated this guy. I hated that guy. I hated that guy for stopping me from, from, from doing what I wanted to do. Eventually, the police came and said that if I didn't go with them, they'd have to cuff me. So the head of, the head of dance decided that she would drive me with the police's permission. They would escort us in their van while the head of dance drove me to a mental health ward or mental health, men, mental health facility we got there eventually. We, we got lost on the way and we joked about how the police would think that they were kidnapping me and not taking me where I was meant to go. Um, anyway, long story short, after all this stuff, they assessed that I wasn't a danger to myself for that particular day. I had to promise that I wasn't, and wasn't going to try anything else and I was sent home. I got a letter in the post saying that I'd been put, from the NHS saying that I was being put on a 52-week waiting list for treatment. And the only thing I could think about was Mountview, going back to drama school. 52 weeks from that point onward would mean that I wouldn't be getting any treatment in time to go back to drama school. I had to go back to drama school. I couldn't fail at that. So I got a job because obviously my student loan wasn't... I was still living with the six boys, the five other boys. I got a, I got a job. They went back to drama school in the new term and I got a job at, as a, an office junior at, at an accountancy and I started really struggling again. And then it occurred to me that I've got to find treatment. I've got to pay for my own treatment. If I have to wait 52 weeks privately um, to do it by the NHS, I've got to pay for my own treatment. Mm -hmm. And I remember Googling stuff. And there was this uh, National Register of Psychologists or psych Psychotherapists is what it's called. I don't know if it still exists. And basically what you do is you put your postcode in and it shows you all the therapists who are closest to you. And the kind of therapy that I first had was more about coping mechanisms and cognitive behavior therapy so cbt is is the is what it's known as now and actually it's about just everyday life noticing triggers in your life how you can maybe 
combat them to prevent you having a reaction that's going to harm you. It cost me a fair bit of money every week, but it started helping. It started making sense. And I went to Spain and performed for a while. And then the demons creep back. You can't escape you. We had a pool in our complex. And we remember sitting there at nighttime, just looking into the water, thinking, if I could just find a way to just weight myself down and drown in this pool, I'll be fine. Um, and eventually, you know, eventually one day, it all got too much, and, and I took a whole cocktail of pills. Was, ambulance was called. They tried to they stick this really wide tube up your nose. It hurt. I remember punching the, the nurse, and she was like, I'm not, I'm not dealing with this man. This man is hurting me. I remember running away out of this ambulance and running to the top of my building where I was living and thinking, I can just jump. I should just jump. I should just jump off this building. Anyway, eventually, I kind of came to my senses, and they told me that I had to drink, like, four pints of milk to flush my stomach out that way. And I did, and the ambulance went, blah, blah, blah. Again, the, the pattern is, I can't handle things when they get difficult. If I'm unhappy, I, I run away. And then it started, it came round to the new academic term was meant to be starting. And the very first day going back to drama school, I remember turning the corner, just, just before we turn the corner, this massive dread. And one of the girls, Natalie Caswell, she hugged me. She hugged me. On the first day, first morning, she came up to me and hugged me. And she hugged me every morning for the first week. I walked into the common room and it was great. Immediately it was different. The people in this year group, and that, inclu- and that, and that includes you too, uh, um, it, just, it just worked. When you joined our year, I remember there was a, this wonderful burst of energy, this new breath of fresh air that we, uh, very few of us knew anything about your past. Of course, we'd heard the odd thing here or there, but we were excited about having this new person join us and there you were. And uh, I mean, it was I know, so much fun, like, you know. You were very successful in your second and third years at, at Mountview, you um, achieved an awful lot. You really progressed as an artist. I did. Uh, with, with a lot of struggle at the same time as well. Of course. Yes. Of course. And of course, on the surface, you presented a bubbly, cheerful, confident persona. Mm-hmm. Um, you got the nickname Ediva. <laughs> yes. Which, um, I, which I own with pride. And then when we pushed forward to towards the end of Mountview, uh, and you were snapped up, by a great agent and went into the Lion King in the West End, mm-hmm. your first job. Mm-hmm. How was that experience? Can you remember your first day of rehearsals? I remember feeling so ready. Turned up to Lion King and it was a mix of people from South Africa who just happened to be able to sing. People, a mix of people who had just come to open, open auditions and were in the cast. I remember being the only person that had my pencil, my dictaphone, my file. Just little things that we're taught at drama school that, you know, you take for granted. But being so, so ready and being able to read sheet music and all these things that you go, this is what I was meant to do. This is what I was trained to do. And it was great. But Lion King was a show that I saw when I was 16 years old. That far back thinking, if I could ever be in a show like this, as I was in drama school, thinking Lion King would be the show for me to be in. Hope you're enjoying the conversation. Stay with us and we'll be back to the chat in a moment. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast. We release a new episode every Sunday. And if you're subscribed, it'll just appear on your device ready for you to listen to. Whether you're using an iPhone or an Android or a laptop of some kind, it's easy to subscribe. 
All you need to do is go to your normal podcast app. If it's an iPhone, then next to the logo of our show, you'll see a little settings wheel that looks like a cog. Click on that. A few options down. It says subscribe. Or if you're using an Android phone, then on the Double Pod app next to the logo of our show is the subscribe button. Easy as that. And the best part is it's totally free. Make sure you stay tuned right to the end of this episode and you'll hear a clip revealing who's on next week's show. And now back to the chat with Eddie. And of course you went on to play the pivotal role of Water Buffalo number four. No, sorry, Wildebeest. Oh. I'll clarify that, Wildebeest. Um, fast forward to my opening night. Some of you guys were there from I was college. There. Some of you guys were yeah. there from... Well, you came to the after party because Rob is very good at schmoozing and yeah. getting his way. I remember, I will never forget, it was a standing ovation and having taken my first bow on a professional stage. I mean, I've done stuff beforehand. I've been paid to do, but professional stage as a, as a uh, professional actor who'd graduated from drama school. It was a sense of peace, actually. A lot of struggle to get here. I've earned this. I really, I really earned this. And this feels like... I've come full circle and it makes sense. It feels good. And then, you know, life continues. And then you start realising that actually being an actor is eight shows a week, six days a week, and can be monotonous. Especially when you are playing an exotic plant. (laughs) (laughs) I've got this really, really clear, vivid memory of watching an open night. And of course being incredibly proud and watching my mate walking onto the western stage to the circle of life and then the, the line where you will stand with your your playing plants oh my god the grass yeah the grass the grass yes i mean some of the <laughs> most unflattering costumes in the history because you almost become a living set and it starts to, starts to feel really insignificant and like i'm standing here with this there's in the can you feel the love tonight sequence there's um we're all tropical plants and i had this upside down watermelon on my head with bits of green sticking out i'm standing there arms spread like a, a weird exotic cactus with these colored nipples off my body and i'm and i'm standing there going mamela mamela bona leratoe which isn't the most exciting line to sing in musical theater and i got to 3 months in and i thought uh oh I've made a mistake. This isn't what I'm meant to do. This is really hard because it's so boring. And of course, you're living uh, with some people who are dreaming of being yeah. in a West End show and, and, and you want to come home and you want to whinge and complain. No, you and- don't. Yes. And you don't, you, you dare not because the other people are still waiting. We've all graduated. People are waiting for their opportunities to, to, to trickle in. Who am I then to go... Hi guys, the first person in our year to have a West End job. This is really boring. Uh, I hate it. I'm struggling. Oh gosh, you don't say anything. It's monotonous. But even if you even if you're playing a lead, it's difficult because you do the same thing every day. Uh, and I start having all kinds of insecurities, which I won't go into. But eventually, I realise that I need help again, and I go back to my therapist and start having therapy again. And this time, we start doing some of the background work. What led me to become who I am? Why am I struggling? Why do I view the world the way that I do? I wasn't feeling any better. I wasn't getting any happier. I terminated it. I refused to see it through. I thought, this is a lot of money and I'm getting nothing in return. I'll just suck it up. This is who I am. This is who I am. I have to accept it. I will always be someone who's a little bit less happy than other people. And it's a weird thing to say because people know me or come across me in everyday life. I'm a really joyful, joyous person. I'm really happy. I really, really am. I love lots of things, but go down a few layers and I'm dealing with massive insecurity, massive anxiety. And, you know, one thing led to another. I had a successful five-year run of doing shows in and out. So, on paper, you've had an extremely uh, successful career. 
Okay, so uh, obviously the Lion King we've mentioned, five guys named Mo, South Pacific, We Will Rock You, Music Man, Pantos, you've done bits of TV, mm-hmm. you've done commercials. But as well as that, you've had long periods where you've been out of work. Yes. So why and how have you kept on? What are the alternatives? I love being a performer. But there are times when, no matter how successful you've been previously, in that moment when you are doing another promo job or you work in front of house for the fourth month in a row, you kind of go, this isn't the life that I that I dreamed. I wasn't told about this part at drama's drama school. This isn't what I want. I've toyed with the idea of doing many things over the years, but I've always come back to being an actor. Is what I know that I do best. I've, I've earned some decent money and had some good times as a result of my craft. And that in itself is a success to say, actually, I trained in this and I can live the life that I want. Secondly, you remember that you love it. Every so often you remember you, you love it. You, you love it. You genu- genuinely love it. But there's nothing like auditioning, getting off of the role, going into rehearsals, meeting a new cast and thinking, I made it. I'm spending ten or eight hours a day twirling, working it, you know, singing. In some ways it's ludicrous that you get paid to do this. And that's why you carry on. You're also using this year, uh, you and your partner are going down the route of adoption we are we are indeed which uh, again is something that i never thought was ever possible you know i would never have thought that me being in a, in a happy relationship with another man was possible let alone that we'd be able to adopt um you're even writing a blog about it yes we are three years two men one baby.co.uk check it out it's really good it's a really hard probably one of the hardest things i've ever done in my life but that's the joy of me realizing where i am now i've come full circle you know, you said that you never thought you would be in a position to be in, in a relationship with a man and adopt. So mm-hmm. what changed? My partner, Jody, we've been together almost four years now, and he has pushed me to get better for myself. This last four years, I finally really pursued the treatment that I needed and have needed for the majority of my life. I finally got onto antidepressants, had long term therapy for over a year and a half and Learnt that I was lovable. I learnt that I can expect more from myself and people are entitled to expect more from me. He's pushed me to, to find my happiness, basically. So here we are three years later after having, having been together, after having, you know, times where it's been really tough. I've, you know, I, in some ways I've been more ill than I've ever been in, in, in this last three, four years because I've been pushed. I've been pushed by him and I wanted to give up on many occasions and I've been suicidal again, yes, but actually I've come through the other end and, you know, I got well. I got really, really well and I was discharged from my therapy after a year and a half and then other things started falling into place. I got this West End job. I started the adoption process. These are byproducts. These, these are afterthoughts, you know. These aren't what, these aren't what are making me happy. They contribute to my happiness. They contribute to my, my peace of mind, my well-being. So I'm in a position where I feel... I deserve to have the things I want. I deserve to be a parent. I, will, I deserve to, 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 to have the job that I do. I deserve to have the partner that I have. And, you know, lots of my life has been spent feeling unworthy. I'm not good enough for, in a whole host of manners. Uh, so here we are, ready to be parents. Uh, marriage on the, on the card at some point down the line. Jody, I know you want us to get married. And, you know, I have my reservations about that. But, you know, but I'm, I am now who I would have been jealous of at 23 or 24, 25 or 26. I am who I would have been jealous of. Where I am right now in the moment in time, an ensemble member in a show in the West End with a partner that I love, embarking on um, starting a family. That's more than I could ever have asked for, you know. And 
And it's a great feeling to have. I want to ask you about um, mental health. Uh, do you, you must be able to spot it in others. Yes, I can. I'm no expert, but the biggest thing that I see in other people is second-guessing themselves and berating themselves quietly. And something that I do... I mean, living with you, Ben, you hear me talking to myself all the time. And it's, I have conversations, and the more upset I am and the more anxious I am, the louder the voices get, and I, and I verbalise how I'm feeling. And people will mutter to themselves. I remember doing a, doing a show a few years back, and one of the people in the cast identified that she was struggling. And my favourite thing to do is, rather than go, I think you've got a problem, I just say, over a cup of coffee or whatever it is, I, I, I put it into conversation, oh, I've struggled, oh, I'm on, I'm on antidepressants, oh, you know, I'm, I'm on this and I've done this. And then they open up. Because they think, they see me as someone who probably looks like they have it all together. Again, quite out there, quite fun, quite fun-loving. And they go, oh, you're just like me and you're struggling. It's so important for people to talk about. And mental health issues are so rife in the world, that we, the entertainment world, you know. Do you think that mental health issues are still a taboo in our industry? Taboo, not the right word. I'd say it's something that still isn't um, as... as um, spoken about as it should be but no people just are still afraid about being found out people might think that think less of you um is there a fear that it 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 might hold you back at all is that something that comes into play i don't want to put words in your mouth no no not 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 for me no not at all in fact you know i mean clearly by the fact you're you've we're talking to you about this. Yeah. You're open enough to, for yeah. other people to hear your story. I think it's very important for company managers who take care of cast members, uh, uh, people who are teaching young people about performance to be aware that uh, mental health issues are more prevalent than they might suspect. It's so important to let people know that they're, they're, um, there's help for them. And that actually, I remember having my, having one of us, a psychiatric, um, evaluation maybe three years ago and me saying, I don't want to be on drugs. I don't want to be on antidepressants. And he said, if you had diabetes, you take insulin every day. If you had a hormone deficiency, you take whatever it was every single day because that's what your body needs. You need medication to, to, to rebalance the chemicals in your brain. It's what you need. There's nothing wrong with it. It, it. it enables you to be the best best version of yourself. It's what you need. People need to know that actually there's no weakness in seeking help. In fact, the reverse is true. There's great strength because you start discovering who you can be. You just start discovering the best version of yourself, the strength that you do have. In 2014, you were diagnosed with um, emotionally unstable personality disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, When you heard the symptoms, uh, you told me before you you almost started laughing because it was literally... It's it's, it's me. It's me. And, you know, I've struggled for you. And it's weird because not having... I remember going back when I was 19, 20, thinking this is just who I am. This is just who I am. And I thought that for years and years and years, this is who I am. This is who, who I'll always be. And actually getting somebody, a professional to say to me, you're not overreacting. You're not a drama queen. You're not attention seeking. Your list of symptoms symptoms mean that you've had this condition. I'll just give you some of that. Um, yep. Unstable self-image. Yes. Anxiety disorder. Yes. Poor impulse. Yep. Um, and unfortunately, a high mortality rate. Yes. Look, so, I mean, I've, I, I've spoken, maybe I've mentioned two or three suicide attempts. So what advice would you give me if I suspected that somebody... I was working with or that I knew was suffering in a way that you had. What, how would you advise me to approach them or not approach them? Or, or what do I do? How, how do? First thing is people need to know they're not alone. The best thing you can do is just go and talk to them. 
don't 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 even have to broach the subject of mental health. Just say, "Are you okay?" Start a conversation. How are you feeling? And sometimes let's push a little bit. A lot of people who have a lot of self pride or don't want to be seen as weak, myself included, won't tell you the truth straight away. Won't open up to you because trust issues also come into play. You feel like you have to do it all by yourself. You have to be resilient. So I would say, more than anything, just be a friend. Don't just say you're a friend. Be a friend. Be there. Push them to to hang out with you for a coffee. Then, if it's apparent there are there are issues, talk to them about the possibility of seeking help. Now, help comes in the form of many things. Counselors didn't work for me. Maybe that's that was a particular counselor as opposed to counseling as a profession. You know, I, I, I am very much an advocate of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, um, but I would say seek help. And the first port of call is your GP. And don't be fobbed off. Don't be fobbed off. I remember going to the GP with my partner and if he hadn't been there, I would have walked away yet again being told that I didn't need anything. Um, and we pushed and we pushed and we got some antidepressants and that was the start of my recovery along with getting some therapy on the NHS. We're going to ask you for two pieces of advice now. The first bit of advice is for the listener who a lot of your story is ringing true to, someone who is experiencing some of the things that you've experienced. What do you say to that person? I'm going to be really frank. My life could have ended at 20. Had my partner at the time not intervened, my life could have ended at 20. And anyone who's listening now, I've done some incredible things. I've actually got to to realise some of my dreams None of that would have been possible had I not been here to do it. Persevere, seek the help that you need and seek the help that you're entitled to. Everyone deserves to be happy. Everyone deserves to have a semblance of the life that they want. It takes work. No one says it's easy, but persevere. The second piece of advice that we're going to ask you is what advice would you give to anyone who wants to work inside the West End? The same thing applies. It's the same same advice again. Perseverance. You have to you have to have um, tenacity in terms of. Had I given up in those two years when it was going really, you no, know, everything was really dry. It was a drought. I wouldn't be in Motown. I wouldn't be for me to be the original UK cast of something. Is is another small dream that I'm ticking off. You just keep doing it until it stops being fun. If the difficulty outweighs any pleasure you're getting from it, just don't do it. You haven't failed. You can pick something else. If it's what you want to do, be prepared. It's a long haul thing. It's a long term thing. Pigs and troughs. But hold on in there and persevere. Eddie, thank you so much for being so honest with us. and Not talk- at all. Talking us through it, all of that. I mean, I'd imagine that that, that will help uh, and inspire a lot of people in a way that you probably don't imagine right now. Um, so really thank you for taking the time to speak to us. If you want to write into the guys to contact me via them, then please do as well, because I'm so up for sharing and encouraging and just giving people advice. Because had there not been key people in my life to help me at certain points, as I say, I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be doing what I was doing. Of course, inside the West End at gmail.com. If someone's really struggling and needs to speak to someone as quickly as possible, are, are there any places that you would recommend? That people- I guess the Samaritans is the best, is the first port of call. I'd say if you're really desperate, call a helpline like the Samaritans. Eddie Elliott, thank you very much. Thank you guys. It's been great. It's been really, it's been, it's been quite cathartic. And every time I, every time I share the story, it makes the burden a little bit lighter. It just does. 
A huge thank you to Eddie for taking the time to speak to us, of course, but also for being so open and honest about such big moments in his life. I'm sure there's going to be dozens of people out there who will listen to this uh, and be inspired. Should you be someone who has been affected by any of the issues that have come up in this conversation, then please go online to the Samaritans.org uh, and you can find ways of how you can find help yourself should you need it. Their phone number for the UK and for the Republic of Ireland is 116123 and their phone lines are open 24 hours a day. You can also contact Eddie by emailing us inside the West End at gmail.com and we will pass on any correspondence relating to this episode. We love to hear what you think of the show. So get in contact with us on Twitter at Inside West End. Remember to stay tuned to the very end for a clip of the next episode. But before that, we make this podcast for free. If you've enjoyed it and you'd like to help us make future episodes, then here's how you can. Next time you shop online with Amazon, visit InsideTheWestEnd.com first. Click on any of the Amazon adverts on our site. It will take you straight to Amazon. Your shopping will cost you exactly the same as normal, but Amazon will give us a small kickback as a thank you. Also on InsideTheWestEnd.com, you'll see a donate button. If you'd like to make a direct contribution, then click on the button and follow the link. Now, as promised, we have a clip of next week's episode with one of the biggest casting directors in the UK. It's Debbie O'Brien. The biggest mistake people make is not preparing properly. And um, I always find, what, what I find most extraordinary is how nervous performers get, even when they've been in the business for years and years and years, how nervous they get at auditions. You just have to pretend this is a performance. That, that's the biggest problem, I think, but not preparing is a real issue. <laughs> <laughs>